Yes, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence this morning to boast, but not to boast in ourselves, not to boast of our wisdom, not to boast of our strength, not to boast of our knowledge or our virtue. We boast in you. We boast in your righteousness, in your glory, in your death, and in your resurrection. We rejoice in your gospel, the good news that comes to us from outside us and meets our deepest need. Lord, it blows our minds to think that we would gain from the reward that you earned, but that's grace. And so we thank you for it. We worship your holy name. And we ask that that grace would continue to be poured out in our hearts, that we might know you, that we might love you, and become more and more like you, all for your glory. So be with us now as we look into your word. Speak to us. Take these familiar truths that we will rehearse today, and I pray that you would stir up joy, affection for Christ, and a sense of gratitude for your grace. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles once again to the book of Luke. We're working through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 1, which means that it's going to be Christmas in July for the next couple weeks. Hope you guys are okay with that. Um, The Bible, as you know, if you've read it at all, even if you haven't read it, you've just heard truth about the Bible, the Bible is a book of miracles. We hear about Moses' staff turning into a serpent as he throws it down onto the ground in, in Pharaoh's courtroom. We see the walls of Jericho falling down. When the children of Israel march around it, they give a shout and blow the trumpet. We find a rebellious prophet named Jonah swallowed up by a great fish. The Bible is full of these stories of great miracles, but the most important miracles of all, and they're all important, but the most important miracles, the ones that really are even the most impressive, are the ones that are found in the life and the ministry of Jesus These miracles do more for us than than simply solve problems in the story. Uh, These miracles do more than even help people who have problems and, and sort of move the story along. These miracles in the life and ministry of Jesus, they demonstrate with undeniable force that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus came to save us. That's what those miracles teach us. And I think the two miracles that most powerfully prove those truths, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to save us, the two miracles that prove that most powerfully are found at the beginning and the end of the Jesus story, in the virgin birth and the resurrection. We're going to look at the truth of his birth this morning. And as we look at this annunciation uh, that the angel gives to Mary in Luke chapter 1, I hope that you can can understand, and this is why I think it's even helpful to study this, not in the second half of December. But I hope that you can see this story and see this text as more than just some sentimental Christmas story that we rehearse when there's poinsettias everywhere and eggnog flowing and we're planning to see family soon and the snow is quietly falling. We're so removed from that. It's 100 degrees outside, miserably humid, This is a very different moment, which might actually help us to read this story, because this story provides for us a central doctrinal pillar for the Christian faith. There's foundational truth in this story. It's an account of how God has provided salvation for his people. That's Luke's theme, is that salvation is found in Jesus, and it's for everyone 
who will come to believe. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born of a virgin. These are timeless truths that shape who we are, that shape what we believe. They shape how we live. In the Annunciation of Jesus' birth, we're actually going to look at two essential, essential Christian doctrines, then flowing from that one essential Christian duty. So if you're taking notes, there'll be three points, two essential doctrines, truths for us to believe, and one essential Christian duty, a task that we are to do. Look at those together. Number one, the first essential Christian doctrine we find in verses 26 through 38 is that salvation comes through the divine Son of God. Salvation comes through the divine Son of God. These scriptures teach to us that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. Look in verse 26. It tells us in the sixth month, This is with reference to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You remember last week we looked at the the promise about the birth of John the Baptist and how this old lady named Elizabeth, who's married to an old priest named Zechariah, they were with child. Well, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you were with us last week, and as you can see referenced in this text, previously, This angel Gabriel, whom we meet in verse 26, he had been sent to deliver a shocking message about a supernatural birth to an old man, telling Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. Now, six months later, this same angel is sent to deliver another shocking message about another supernatural birth, but this time to a young girl. And this time, the scene is very different. Zechariah gets his vision in the temple. Uh, right in the presence of God with the, the significant and symbolic furniture right in his face and the lampstand burning and the incense rising up and the curtain, all that stood between him and the Ark of the Covenant. But Mary is just at home and she's not a priest. She is no one of significant importance. And we're told a lot about Zechariah, but we're told very little about this girl. She's a virgin and probably about 12 to 13 years old. 
And she was betrothed, which is more than just engaged. That was a legal arrangement. There was a legal contract in place that she was planning to marry a man named Joseph. And these betrothals could only be broken by death or divorce. So there's something binding in place. But that's really all the info we get about Mary. And we're not told very much about her at all. We're simply told that the angel Gabriel appears to her. And he immediately seeks to, in verse 28, assure her that all is well. And as we always see in Scripture, when someone sees a vision, when someone receives a message from one of these angelic beings, it's pretty terrifying. Immediately he greets her. Verse uh, 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I want to look at how he addresses her. This word, he calls her, O favored one, the root word here for favor is grace. The root word is grace. She is favored by God. Now, this does not mean that she is a giver or a dispenser of grace. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church um, will often repeat this, Hail Mary, full of grace, as if Mary is this sort of repository who possesses all this grace, who can give it to others. But that's really not what's being said here. She is greeted as a favored one, meaning that that she has been designated as a recipient of grace. The angel is saying, listen, Mary, though you are a sinful human being, though you are a young girl who's terrified by my appearance, do not be afraid because God is smiling upon you. God loves you. God is pouring out grace upon you. This doesn't mean that she's somehow earned God's approval It simply means that God loves her. He's pouring out his grace on her. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And when he tells her the Lord is with you, that's more than just a a simple statement of God's presence. This is actually filled with purpose. In scripture, when you see statements like this, that the Lord was with him or the Lord was with her, it, it means that God has something for her to do. The Lord is with you to enable you to do something specific, something significant. God has big plans for her, and she has a key part to play. But despite this warm greeting, she's greatly troubled in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tries to discern what sort of greeting this may be. She's going, okay, why is this angel talking to me? Why would the Lord be with me? What is it that I am being swept up into? What is he going to say next? She's fearful of the angel, knowing that she's sinful and God is holy, but she's also fearful of what's right around the corner because the way all of this is setting up means that God has big plans for her. But once again, the word of comfort for this fearful girl is that God is being gracious to her. She's greatly troubled, but the angel says in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. Once again, he emphasizes, you have found favor with God. The emphasis is on God's grace towards her. And then the angel begins to tell her exactly what it is that God is calling her to. The angel begins to unpack for her exactly what it means that God is with her and the task she is being called to, the part that she is going to play in God's great plan to bring salvation to a sinful and needy world. I know these are familiar verses. We read them every Christmas. But jump into the mindset of this girl for a moment. The angel says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
Jesus is sort of the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, and it means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. She is going to bear a son, and the gracious good news is that this son's name means that God is bringing salvation. He tells her more about this son. Not only are they to call his name Jesus, but verse 32 says, he will be great. And this parallels the message to Zechariah, that Zechariah and Elizabeth would bear a son, and he would be great before the Lord. But we know as this story unfolds that the son of Mary would be much, much greater than the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. MacArthur calls this a massive understatement. He will be great. Yes, Jesus will be the very definition of greatness. You can't add on superlatives to say very great or, or incredibly great or, or increasingly great. No, he just is great. He is Jesus. He is, as we will see, the very definition of greatness because he is the Son of the Most High. He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, I think at this moment, Mary's eyeballs would have really started popping if they weren't already doing so. That's even possible. Uh, this name, the Most High, is an exalted title for the one true God. This is the God of the Old Testament. The God who triumphs over every false God. The God who rules over creation. The, gods whose presence, the God whose presence you cannot escape whether you go to the heights of the heavens or the depths of the sea. The God who sovereignly ordains all things that come to pass. The God who sovereignly and most powerfully triumphs over all his enemies. Who crushes kings with a rod of iron. The God who demonstrates his glory and dwells among his people. That God. Her son will be called the son of the most high. Her son would not merely be a son of Joseph, her betrothed husband. He would be the son of God. This is a statement not just of his greatness, but of his deity. Jesus would be divine in his nature. He would be the son of God in the sense that he is more than a man. He would be fully human, yes, born of a virgin. Think about what it means to be born. It's a very physical, a very human, a very earthy experience, as all of you moms know, and many of you dads have seen. Jesus would be human, but he would be more than simply a man. While fully man, he would also be fully God. The Son of the Most High speaks to his nature as being fully divine. But being the Son of the Most High is also a statement uh, about his position. It is a royal title. To be the son of the Most High is a statement of his relationship to God, which places him in a position of royalty. Israel's kings were considered sons of God. If you go back to the Psalms and read them, the Psalms speak of the Messiah as being God's anointed son. So the sonship of Mary's son, his relationship to the Most High, um, is not just about relationship, it's also about role. As the son, he would reign as the king. And as the king, he would fulfill pro the promise to David and reign over an eternal kingdom. That's what he says next. As the son of the Most High, in verse 32, it says, The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. It's been mentioned already that Joseph, her betrothed husband, was of the house or of the line of David. And as Joseph's adopted son, 
even if not his biological son, Jesus would have full legal rights as a son of David to be appointed to this place of king. This is the fulfillment of promise. And that's why the Lord can speak through Gabriel and say that he will get the throne of his father, David. There is an inheritance here. He will be given the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forever. Over the house of Jacob, verse 33, he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. As Mary is receiving this message, she's being informed that her son has this special relationship with the Most High God and that he will receive the throne of David, this ancient promise that one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever. And she's being told that he's not just a king, He's the final king, the king whose reign will never end. Every Davidic king before this had an expiration date. David died. Solomon died. Every one of their sons died. But Jesus would reign forever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. This statement of an eternal kingdom for a Jewish girl like Mary who who knew the promises and knew the Old Testament, it would have reminded her of the promise in Daniel and the promise of this eternal kingdom that would never end. She's realizing that through her son, all of those promises, all of God's kingdom purposes, it's all going to converge. It's all going to come together and will be consummated and fulfilled through her son, the son of the most high that would be conceived in her womb. In this announcement, it is clear that salvation The fulfillment of God's promises, the salvation of God, we see it in Jesus' name. Salvation comes through the divine Son. Salvation comes through the divine Son of God. This, friends, is an essential Christian doctrine. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God is necessary to be saved. It's necessary to deny this truth to claim that Jesus was merely a man, that he had no divine nature, to claim that, as some potentially would do, to claim that he didn't even exist historically. If you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you are denying God and rejecting his gospel. It's that serious. John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus says to those who were not believing in him, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's not an overstatement to say that if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you do not have salvation. Because Jesus says it. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins meaning that you will die apart from God's grace. You will die apart from his salvation and you will face the condemnation and the judgment for your rejection of the son of God who came to bring salvation. This is an essential Christian doctrine. Only those who believe in Jesus as the son of God and only those who submit to him as the eternal king will experience the salvation he came to provide. So where does that place you today? Because if you hear this message, you hear this truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus came to provide salvation, you will either say yes or no to that message. Nobody is neutral. 
You either embrace it and submit to it and believe it, or you deny it, you ignore it, you reject it. Those are the only options. But salvation comes through the divine Son of God. And we find that truth very clearly in this text. It's an essential Christian doctrine, and it calls for faith. It must be believed. It must be believed. But there's a second essential doctrine that we find in this section. Number two, salvation is accomplished by the divine power of God. So it comes through the divine Son, salvation does, and it's accomplished by the divine power of God. Mary seems to understand something of what the angel is saying here, that her child will not be Joseph's son, but will be God's son. And this is to happen before she is married, because she asks a question in verse 34. She goes, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, it's interesting here. Mary asks this question after hearing this sort of shocking news from the angel. If you remember last week, Zechariah also had questions. Zechariah had a question for the angel. And we saw that his question was really rooted in disbelief, which is nothing more than unbelief. When the angel told Zechariah that he and his wife would conceive and bear son in their old age, he said, how shall I know this? For I am very old, and my wife is exceedingly old. Mary asks a different question. This is not a question of disbelief like Zechariah. I think in her question, we actually see an expression of faith because she does not ask, how shall I know this, asking for a sign. She asks, how will this be? Because I think she believes that it will happen. She's simply struggling to understand how. Okay, I I believe what you say is going to happen, but help me out here. How is this going to work? Because I'm not married. I've never been with a man. And I know how pregnancy comes about. And remember, it's been 400 years at this point. 400 years of no visions, no prophets, no miracles. It's been a very quiet 400 years in Israel. But she asks, how will this be? Because she assumes there is an explanation. And so rather than rebuking her, like he rebuked Zechariah, remember he rebuked him and corrected him, and Zechariah was made both deaf and mute until his son was born as sort of a disciplinary, uh, as a disciplinary sign. Rather than rebuking this girl, the angel just gives her the explanations she's asking for. He explains in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The explanatory power of Mary's pregnancy will be the mysterious working of God himself in her womb. And it's important that we note here there's no crude imagery with with the conception of the Messiah. There's no pagan idea here. Of, of the gods procreating with human women. That's a pagan idea where there's, there's, there's sexual union between these, these divine beings and human women. That's not what's going on here in this text. This is a beautifully subtle and mysterious description of a divine miracle. The Son of God will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is a spirit. There is no body involved. This is not an act of fertilization. 
It's an act of special creation. The same spirit that we saw in Genesis who hovered over the waters in creation would come upon Mary, hovering over Mary, as it were, overshadowing her womb and creating life. And it's in this way, through this divine power of God, that the seed of the woman would come. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent. It is in this way, through this miraculous creative work in this girl's womb, that the promise of Psalm 2 would be fulfilled. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It was in this way, through this miraculous conception, that the prophecy of Isaiah would reach a final and ultimate fulfillment, that the virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is how that promise would come to be. It's in this way that the word would become flesh and dwell among us, just like John Cook read for us earlier from John chapter 1. It's in this way that God would send his only son into the world. Through this divine work of his power, a creative miracle to create life in a virgin's womb. Now this may have been hard for Mary to imagine, but the angel offers her a compelling reason to believe his word in verse 36. It says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. He tells Mary, listen, I know this is hard for you to believe, but God is already on the move. He's already doing things that are technically impossible. You can believe it. The same power that enabled an old man and an old woman to bear a child would also empower Mary without any human relations to conceive in her womb. And I love how he ends his message, that powerful statement in verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. This is a statement of his power, that there's no limits to the power of God. And the salvation that we need, the salvation that comes through Christ, is brought to us by that divine power. He is the God who speaks the world into existence. He can create life in a womb. He's the God who pours out plagues on Egypt and parts the sea and gave Israel the promised land despite all the military powers that were there. He's the God who once helped a little shepherd boy to defeat a massive giant. David, who was the ancestor of her child. The same God who swallowed up rebellious prophets with large fish. The same God who rescued a faithful exile from the lion's den. That God would give her a son. He's the God of the impossible. And that son would grow up to one day heal the sick, to heal the lame, to heal the diseased. That son, who was the son of the Most High, the God for whom nothing is impossible, that son would cast out demons. That son would walk on water. That son would feed thousands of people. That son would calm a storm with a word. His disciples would tremble and say, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But even more than that, that son would die on the cross and that son would rise from the grave because nothing is impossible with God. 
And in his death and resurrection, he would bring life to those who were spiritually dead. He would secure forgiveness for the guilty and cleansing for those who have been defiled by sin. In doing so, he would purchase our freedom and grant eternal life to those of us who are in the bondage of death. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. The most impossible task of all would be accomplished through this son. He would bring salvation for the world. Nothing is impossible with God. Listen, salvation from beginning to end, from the conception of the Messiah to his resurrection, and to your own conversion, your own forgiveness, your own redemption, salvation is accomplished by the divine power of God. This is no work of man. This is not something we accomplish. This is God's doing. Upon hearing this amazing announcement, notice how Mary responds in verse 38. I love this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a profound statement of both submission and faith. That's the response to this good news about God's divine power working through his divine son. It is submission and faith. She embraces the will of God. She says, if this is what God wants to do, I'm in. I'm all in. Despite the public scandal that that would cause, because she would very obviously become pregnant and everyone knew that she wasn't married. Despite the risk it, po- it posed to her future marriage, would Joseph believe her story? That she was pregnant because of the Lord's doing and that she had not been immoral or unfaithful? Joseph didn't believe her story. In fact, he was planning, we, we, we learned this in Matthew's gospel, he was planning to divorce her until the angel showed up to Joseph and said, her story's true. She's with child from the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Israel's law, the death penalty was technically in play for immorality. While it was rarely carried out, it was treated that seriously in Israel. But she said, if this is God's will, I submit to it. I embrace it. Let it be to me according to your word. She, she submitted to the will of God, but she also believed the word of God. Despite the incomprehensible nature of this pregnancy, uh, despite the incomprehensible nature of the son that, that is going to come and who he is, and, and despite this almost too good to be true destiny, that he would sit on the throne of his father David and there would be no end to his kingdom, despite how massive that, that message is, she believed the word of God. She submits to his will and believes in his word. What an amazing response of faith to this message. The power of God, this divine power that accomplishes salvation, it calls for faith. It calls for faith, not just for Mary, but for us as well. The virgin birth is not just a feature of a self-contained story here. This virgin birth is the fulfillment of prophecy, and it's an essential Christian doctrine. The virgin birth matters. It matters that you and I believe in it, that we believe it's true, that we believe it happened, because the gospel itself depends upon this. The virgin birth proves the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God. And that's important because no mere man can save us. Because normal men are born of man. 
not of God, which means we inherit a sinful nature, which means we are those who need to be saved, not those who can provide salvation. The virgin birth proves the deity of Christ. The virgin birth also proves the humanity of Christ. There are some throughout history who have claimed that Jesus was merely an apparition, that he was some sort of spiritual manifestation, that he was a God dwelling among us, but he wasn't fully human. But listen, only a man can represent men. For Jesus to be the second Adam who represents us in our place, he had to be human. He had to be a descendant of David to inherit David's throne and fulfill those promises. So it's important. The virgin birth safeguards these truths, that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also fully human. The virgin birth is also essential because it protects the sinlessness of Christ. The child to be born, because he's the Son of God, will be called holy. Jesus is the only one who can be called holy perfect, sinless. And as such, he's the only one who can offer that perfect, acceptable sacrifice to God. The sacrifice on the cross that secures our salvation. Guys, the virgin birth is not just some sort of like neat story that we sing about at Christmas. It's foundational. We must believe it because the very gospel depends on this truth. These two truths, the deity of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ, these two essential doctrines must be believed. They are to be cherished. They are worth defending. But we're not only concerned with understanding these doctrines. We always want to respond rightly to doctrinal truth, right? The truth is not just to be known and believed. It's to shape how we live. So salvation is accomplished by the divine Son of God. That's a key doctrine. Salvation depends on the divine power of God. This is essential. But let's look now at our essential Christian duty. Number three, salvation produces praise for God. Salvation produces praise for God. Mary immediately acts upon the info she received. If you look at verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth is expecting by the power of God. That's what Mary found out from the angel. She's like, okay, let's go. I I, want to see this. I I want to have my faith confirmed and strengthened. I'm excited about what's going on in their life as well. And probably Elizabeth is the only one who would believe her story. So you know how fun it is to tell someone you're expecting for the first time. Nobody's going to believe her, but Elizabeth would. So she goes in a hurry to meet her relative Elizabeth. And upon arrival, Elizabeth bursts forth with this inspired exclamation. Elizabeth hears the greeting, and verse 41 tells us she's filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So, so these are divine words pouring forth from Elizabeth's lips. And three times she uses the word blessed. Three times she says that Mary, or, or twice she says Mary is blessed. Once she says the fruit of her womb is blessed. She says first, blessed are you among women. It's interesting, um, in Hebrew culture in those days, that a woman's status was typically very dependent upon her children, how many children she had, especially male children, and what those children accomplished. That would have been a source of honor and blessing for her. And so Elizabeth blesses Mary, blessed are you among women because of who her son would be. It's not that Mary is something special in and of herself. It's that her son is great. Her son is the son of the Most High. Her son is Jesus, the one who brings the salvation of God. Her son is the one who would sit on the throne of David. So she says, blessed are you among women. She's the most blessed of all because she's the mother of Elizabeth's Lord. She secondly says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. She acknowledges the life inside her and the significance of who this son would be. And then she really blesses herself without using the word blessing. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's filled with with wonder and she's sort of amazed that she gets to be the first one to know. She's blown away that she gets to be in the presence of the mother of her Lord. She recognizes this could have happened 200 years in the past or 200 years in the future, not in her lifetime. She recognizes this could have happened to a number of other women in Israel, and she would not have had a chance to know the mother of her Lord. This could have happened to Mary, and Mary might have told 75 other people. But the fact that she gets to be the first to hear that her Savior is about to be born, she recognizes that she's blessed. So without... Using the word blessing, she's sort of pronouncing this blessing upon herself. When she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She recognizes with joy and with gratitude that she gets to be the first recipient of this good news. And then she blesses Mary again. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. It's amazing as Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and and the baby leaps in her womb. We see John the Baptist here performing his role as as a forerunner who points to Christ even before he's born, which is pretty amazing. And it must have been quite the leap because babies kick and turn all the time. So for her to recognize that this was something special, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to think about. I've never had a baby in my womb, but I've... I felt four babies kick in my wife's stomach, and it's always cool. I've never gotten tired of that. It's just amazing to think about John the Baptist leaping for joy. Remember, John, it was said, would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. So we see the Spirit filling Elizabeth and the Spirit even empowering John the Baptist to sort of like warm up for his lifetime of pointing to Jesus and saying, he's the one. He's the one to believe in. It's this amazing scene. But what is... Mary do with all this blessing? I mean, Elizabeth is blessing her and and feeling blessed just to be in her presence. What does Mary do with all of this blessing that's being directed to her? All of this honor that's being given to her? I, I love this. She immediately turns it away from herself. She immediately deflects the honor and the attention from her and she puts it squarely on her Lord. 
You see, Mary believes God's word. Mary, like Elizabeth, is filled with joy and wonder. And so her joy and wonder at what God is doing immediately pours forth into praise. Look at this song of praise, this magnificent hymn from a young girl. Remember, she's like 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. And there's this rich, theological, beautiful hymn that she, where she immediately gives the praise and the glory to God. And Mary said, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. I want to draw your attention just to a few things we can learn about the kind of praise that we ought to offer to God. A response of praise to the good news of salvation. We see that Mary's praise is first and foremost, it is God-centered and God-focused. Her worship, her praise is God-centered and God-focused. Verse 46, my soul magnifies who? The Lord, and my spirit rejoices in who? In God my Savior. And then the rest of the time she talks about what God has done. Her worship, her praise is God-focused and God-centered. I, I know you all are in a Protestant church this morning, but we need to belabor the, point, belabor the point. It is not Mary who deserves worship. It is God. If you really want to honor Mary, follow her example and point the attention on who it deserves to be on, which is the Lord, the one who has done great things. We see, secondly, that her praise is not only God-centered, God-focused, but it comes from the heart. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is Hebrew poetry where the repetition and the parallelism is driving home and emphasizing the point that this is something that is springing up from deep within her. This is not simply some external exercise where you repeat the things. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because these are the things we sing and we say when we come to church. No, this is welling up from deep within her. It's praise that comes from the heart. It's not merely external. It is also, third, praise that is humble. She calls herself, in verse 48, a servant. Echoing back to verse verse 38. It was verse 38 and verse 48. It's both of the eights there. But she calls herself a humble servant. A humble servant. She recognizes... And no disrespect to her, but she's just like you and me. She's a nobody. She's a nobody. She's just a normal girl from a small town. It's actually, you can't even find references to Nazareth in many um, ancient historical texts because it was just this little village where there's maybe 150 people there. I mean, it's teeny. It's not even worth calling a city. She's from nowhere special. 
We're not told anything about her ancestry in particular. We're not told anything that's remarkable about her. And she knows that. She embraces that. She goes, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm a humble servant. She is not the queen of heaven. She is not a co-redemptrix with Christ. She needs a savior. That's why she rejoices in God, her savior. She knows she is a humble, normal, sinful person. And that's why she's rejoicing. Not because she's getting her due and she's being recognized for who she is, but because she knows who she is, yet God has elevated her to this incredible privilege of bearing the Messiah for the world. Mary knows she is not a source of grace, but a humble recipient of grace. She's deeply grateful. We also recognize in her worship that she gives praise for personal blessing. That's the kind of worship that that honors God, worship that is God-focused, worship that is from the heart, worship that is, is humble, but also worship that acknowledges what God has done personally in our lives. Verse 48, she notes this, that God, her Savior, has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed For this reason, verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She recognizes what God has done for her, what God has done in her, what God is doing through her, and she worships the Lord for it. That's simply what faithful worship is. In Psalm 103, we're told, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist David writes, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Don't forget what God has done for you. David starts rattling them off. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We worship the Lord for what he has done for us what he's done individually, personally for us. That's what God-glorifying worship looks like. She praises God for personal blessing. But then notice then very quickly, she deflects the tension away from herself, even in her worship, and she zooms out because Mary knows that what God has done, this mighty work that he has done, is not just for her. She recognizes she is part of something that is way, way bigger than just her own experience. And she begins to turn the corner here. She says, holy is his name, verse 49. Now she's looking back at God, away from self. In verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She says, this is who God has been to me, but this is who God always has been. And this is the kind of thing God always does. And his power and his faithfulness is true in the past and true in the future. And it's way bigger than just my personal experience. Listen, some people struggle to believe in the goodness of God because of what they've experienced in their own life. And I do not want for a moment to minimize suffering, to minimize loss, or to minimize tragedy. But listen, our understanding of who God is needs to be informed by a much, much wider view than just our own personal experience. We need to take in the scope of what God is doing in history, what God has done throughout time, and let that inform our view of who God is. 
And if you feel like you have nothing in your life you can worship God for and praise God for. Number one, I would tell you, you're not able to see some things that you need to see because God has done things in your life that you must worship him for. But even when you can't see them, maybe you can see the things God is doing throughout history. Zoom out, get that perspective. Mary recognizes the larger plan that God is accomplishing. So she not only praises God for personal blessings, but in verses 50 through 55, she praises God for his redemptive working throughout history. Look in verse 51. He has shown, this is a statement of of historical fact. This Jewish girl knows her Old Testament scripture. She knows her Bible. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Perhaps she has in mind the story of the Exodus, the proud Pharaoh who says, who is the Lord that I should fear him? God says, I'll give you a reason to fear me. He pours out the the plagues, and then he crushes the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And then we have the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, which says the Lord is a warrior, and it talks about his right arm. Mary knows that. She's now worshiping God for who he has been in the past, what he's done. She says in verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Maybe thinking once again of the Pharaoh and how God humiliated him. Perhaps thinking about how Saul, uh, this king, did not want David to become king. And in his pride and in his arrogance, tried to kill David. But what happened? Saul lost the throne and David was exalted. Perhaps she's thinking of the Babylonian uh, king, Nebuchadnezzar, who looked over his empire and says, look at all this that I have done. And then God took him out at the knees. God humbled him. He literally lost his mind for seven years until he recognizes that the Lord is God. And he's the one who sets up and tears down. Mary knows all these things and she's worshiping God for these mighty works throughout history. She says in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Perhaps she's thinking here of the manna that's been given from heaven and the judgment that was brought on Israel's enemies as they entered into um, the, the promised land and entered into the conquest. But here she really gets to it in verse 55. Here's the bottom line. God has done all these things. His faithfulness, his power, his provision, his rescue. He has done all these things. Why? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here's the bottom line. Mary recognizes that her personal experience of this amazing power of God is part of a bigger story where God is keeping his promise. A promise to bless Abraham and to bless Abraham's descendants, to make a great nation from Abraham, and through that nation to bless all the families of the earth. That's the promise to Abraham. And she knows that her son, her son, would be the source of that blessing. Her son would bring salvation for the nation Israel. And her son would bring salvation for the world. That's why she's worshiping. What an amazing expression in this hymn of faith and joy as she expresses praise to God. And this hymn is recorded for us, not just so that we can know what Mary did, but so that we can follow her example. Not so that we can admire her, but so that we can join her in admiring her God. 
That's why this is here. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Listen, God's will for you, Christian, as one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, as one who believes that he was born of a virgin and that through the divine power of God, salvation has come through his death, death and resurrection. It is God's will for you as one who believes in those truths, to engage in this essential Christian duty, to offer worship and praise and glory to the God who is infinitely worthy. Praise is an essential Christian duty. And it is the right and natural response for those who have received this precious gift of salvation through Christ. So we find these two doctrines. We find this essential duty And we can put all this together and say, really, God's gracious provision of salvation, what he's done for you and me through Christ, it calls for faith, it produces joy, and it deserves praise. May we, as as believers in Christ, believe these truths, defend these truths, proclaim these truths, rejoice in these truths as we live a life of worship to our Savior. He who is mighty has done great things. Holy is his name. And God deserves praise for that, not just in the last week of December, but every Sunday, every day, as we give him the glory for how he has provided salvation through his son. Father, we rejoice this morning in the miraculous gift of grace We recognize we are sinful people who cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior who is outside of us, who is one of us and therefore can represent us, but who is also different, and only you can save us. That's why we needed a Savior who is both fully God, fully man, and we thank you, Father, for providing your Son to do exactly what we needed, to live a perfect life, to die for sin and rise again, so that your promise of blessing, the blessing of salvation, could be given to the world. Lord, help us to believe these truths, to faithfully proclaim them, teach them, and defend them. Lord, may we never compromise on these essential truths that undergird the very gospel itself. And I pray that as we cling to these truths and rejoice in them, that our expression of praise to you would give you honor and glory. You deserve more than we can give. We thank you for your faithfulness. And with joy, we bless your name. You are holy. You are mighty. You have done great things. You are faithful. You are infinitely gracious. So we thank you and give you the glory today. Amen.